Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. In this episode, we'll discuss a new ecology bill, which is gaining traction in Parliament. We'll look at the pros and cons of tidal power. Then we'll revisit the government's plans to tackle sewage pollution, such as they are. Then... I'm thrilled to be able to bring you an interview with Craig Bennett, the Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust, and he's got a few choice things to say about the government's bull-in-a-china-shop approach to scrapping hundreds of green laws. After that, Simon and Alice will be along to talk about the EU's Energy Charter Treaty. So, without further ado, let's enter the eco-chamber. I'm Rachel Salvage, and today I'm here with Jamie Carpenter and Tess Colley. Our first story of the Big Green News section is about a rare thing, a private member's bill that looks like it has a whisper of a chance of success. Although it's probably a little bit too soon to make that call, I wouldn't want to get anybody's hopes up. A climate and ecology bill was first introduced by the Green Party's Caroline Lucas in September 2020, but it didn't make the grade. However, it's been reintroduced in a very similar form by Lord Reedsdale. It's designed to ensure that the UK plays its part in keeping warming below 1.5 degrees and also to reverse the ongoing destruction of nature and not just to halt decline by 2030, as is the current target under the Environment Act. As eco-chamber files or chamber pots will know well by now, we live in one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world. Um, So this is designed to try and tackle that. So it has started in the Lords this time. And it has been debated, but it hasn't quite survived intact, has it, Jamie? How has it changed? It's, it's changed in quite a um, fundamental way in that it's actually no longer called the Climate and Ecology Bill. It's called the Ecology Bill. Okay. So um, so Lord, Lord Reedsdale, who um, put the bill forward, he, he um, has amended it himself. Um, basically, his, his argument is that as it's a private member's bill, it has it has a greater chance of becoming law if the the climate elements are are removed. So it just now focuses on on ecology. So he he said it, he said his quote was that this is not because I do not believe they were valuable measures. The problem with private members' bills is that you have to make sure you have something that could pass the House of Commons. Mm. Um, it's also interesting in that debate, as you say, that a number of peers who spoke were were actually quite shocked to find that the UK is one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world, and they clearly haven't been listening to our podcast. Yeah, we need to get the message out. (laughs) (laughs) I I saw that the Lords were keen to keep it really focused, and and I wonder if that's a a smart thing to do. I remember Philip Dunn's bill on sewage was particularly, um, it had a very, very clear focus. And while that ultimately failed, parts of it informed the new um, Environment Act. Uh, There were clauses were entered into the to the bill to um, address some of the issues that he was raising. So perhaps this this strategy is is a good one. How are people reacting to the new sort of pared back ecology bill test? What are they saying? Are they the campaigners behind it? Are they are they okay with this? The the campaigners are really pleased that it's progressed in the laws because so many times it just hasn't, as you were saying before. Um, I think there is a bit of disappointment that the climate element has been dropped. I think um, many of the campaigners, the Net Zero Hour, the group that, that are kind of push, have been pushing this bill from the start, um, they're you know they're really pleased to see it progress through the laws. Seen as so many times, it, just, it simply hasn't hasn't got got going at all. Um, but a bit of disappointment, I think that, that, that the climate element has been dropped. Um, but nonetheless, the Zero Hour Director Amy, Dr. Amy McDonald, she she described it as a huge stride forward. Um, she said both in terms of drawing together civil society to push for urgent nature targets. Um, as well as seeing the bill itself uh, with its nature focus progress. Um, so I think it's a bit of a, a, mi- a mixed feeling, um, but there, there's zero hour expect the bill to be passed to the Commons in early 2023, apparently, mm-hmm. um, where a, a Tory MP, Sir Roger Gale, will pick it up. And I think there's a bit of hope that if it's a Conservative uh, MP taking it forward, that gives it again a bit of a stronger chance of, of getting somewhere. Yeah. And I think even even Reedsdale, he wasn't wasn't that optimistic, was he? He was saying that the government doesn't like signing up to things that actually have cost implications. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yes. And he kind of he went on there saying at the moment they've got you know an agenda that's saying we have to have growth, we have to have development, we must have house building. Mm. Um, but he said these you know these all these things directly impact the natural environment. So the question will be, um, will the government want to sign up to this bill, knowing that it will have a knock on effect on? On other policies, and mm. uh, we've seen that many times before. I think many, many, many times. Yeah, I guess what we need right now is those delayed, overarching environment targets. Anyway, which <laughs> which need to be in place. That would be quite helpful before the biodiversity cop next month. And it's kind of interesting. The the um, in in the government's response to um, Lord Reedsdale's 
um, amendments. They, Lord Callanan, he, he was responding for the business department and he was basically saying kind of very politely that we don't need this bill because we already have these, these this suite of targets under the Environment Act and that will put nature <laughs> at the centre of all government policy making for generations to come. Which and obviously these are these are world leading targets, but mm. there's one slight problem with that argument, <laughs> which is we, we we're still waiting for them to be published. So um yeah. so yeah, so it's probably arguably a good reason why we need a law like this, but probably DEFRA wouldn't agree with that. Yeah, mm. definitely. Well, I think I think the campaigners are hoping in part that by you know, dropping the climate section and getting the ecology bill through quicker in time for COP15, that puts extra pressure mm -hmm. um, on the government. You know, they don't want to look like they're saying no to an ecology bill as we go to an international stage yeah. necessarily. Um, so the we, pressure we will, is on. We will see. Yes, all eyes on DEFRA. Our second story is about tidal power. Plans for ambitious projects to harness the power of the tides, they emerge every now and then, and they're usually beaten back by unfriendly policies, conservation concerns or costs. Um, there's been one mooted for the Severn Estuary a number of times since the 1980s, uh, which could have, according to estimates at the time, uh, well, more recent estimates actually, provide up to about 8% of Britain's electricity needs. Well, unsurprisingly, tidal power is back on the agenda, this time as a solution to the current energy crisis. A developer has drawn up plans for a £2 billion hydroelectric dam across the Wash Estuary in East Anglia, along with a deep water port. This dam would be an 11-mile structure between Hunstanton and Skegness. The developer, which is uh, Centreport Holdings, said it could power around 600,000 homes and that night surpluses could use, uh, could create rather green hydrogen to power industry and that also there would be flood protection benefits. That's the claim. And at first glance, that sounds uh, fabulous. But Tess... Potential downsides are pretty dramatic too. Who's resisting the project um, and qu why? <laughs> quite a number of people are resisting mm. the project. Um, there's been a coalition of green groups, big ones like the RSPB, two wildlife trusts, uh, the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust as well. They've all come together um, saying that you know this this is this is really very, this will be very very bad. Um, it's not just a, a you know a really internationally important estuary for wild birds, they say, but it's you know it's the home to the largest common seal colony and it's an important fishery. Um, and they 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 disagree fundamentally with this idea that um, that this that the barrage will help the flood issues faced by mm -hmm. the region um, because that like you said, centre ports say that the project would in fact protect. This, or this unique ecology um, by controlling storm surges and in and flooding. But these green groups say, I know a, a tidal barrage would fundamentally alter the nature of the intertidal habitats on which all of this wildlife depends. Um, so they, they've really come out very strongly, you know, saying that, that it would displace this, the flow of the tidal water um, and, and could you know, <laughs> increase flooding rather mm -hmm. than reduce flooding. Um, they, you know, they go on and on. So it, yeah, it's been a very strong pushback, as there was in 2008 when a similar project was proposed. And it was similar concerns that eventually seemed to see the project um, be withdrawn. Yeah. And they, on these tidal projects, they sound particularly complicated. I mean, I might be wrong, but if, if it did, for example, if it could overcome these these problems, um, how quickly could something like this be built, Jamie? And is it is it plain sailing? Well, yeah, I mean... I was interested to see that a spokesperson for the for the, the project said, told the BBC that they, they they expected it would be operational by 2028 at the earliest, which <laughs> to me seems pretty far fetched because at the moment they're only they're only at the stage of raising money for the initial studies. So so stuff like um, site checks and environmental impact assessment work and, and detailed design. Um, so if they got to do that, the, an EIA for a project like this is going to be an absolutely huge undertaking. Yeah. And then they've got to get it through the planning process. Then they've got to build it. So I, I, I'm very sceptical about the 2028 date. And I think I think the other thing is is that it's, it's still very early stage at the moment. So they're, they're, they're looking to raise £8 million at the moment to commission that kind of initial work. Mm. And I thought it was interesting in, in, the, in the prospectus that they're, they're looking for companies that have capacity for, for total loss. Is, um, wow. how I feel when I lend money to my kids which is a kind of um, speculative nature of it but they do have the backing of Centrica who's a big energy firm and apparently they've put some money in and, and say that it would provide a, a guaranteed price for the renewable energy produced by the turbines of the tidal lagoon so so it's not I, I kind of started off thinking it was maybe a bit of a PR stunt but actually probably a bit more substance to it than mm. that well, apparently, yeah, Centrica they 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 put enough money to fund all these feasibility studies, so that would that would kind of 
be all the environmental information and um, the stuff that everyone will want to see. So, you know, it's undisclosed amount of money, though, that they've provided. Mm. So and I think they're looking for many, many, many millions. Mm. I wonder if the timescales take into account fighting the opposition and, you know, <laughs> batting mm. off legal challenges and things like that, because uh, they can be quite time consuming, too. I think it'd be a great way to be able to harness the tides without disturbing ecosystems. And at least it doesn't have that intermittency issue that other renewables can have. And I think when we were talking about the seven barrage, the RSPB was saying that some of the problems is that these are developed in isolation and that if, if you know, they would work together with the RSPBs of the world, they could actually um, do something that could help deliver a project and be a win for all concerned. Um, it's, it seems like this is not happening in this case. I mean, it is early days, so maybe they intend to um, talk to the conservationists, but there are, I guess there are a, a number of issues with the deep water port as well. Yeah, well, the deep water port, which is basically what it says on the tin, it's a mm-hmm. kind of a, a port that's deeper, deeper than usual. Um, there, would be very. What the, all the green groups say this: it would be very difficult to build on in the shallow waters of the Wash because um, they say that the rivers, the rivers flowing into the estuary, deposit huge and huge and huge amounts of sediment yeah. into it, and they, you know, about twenty percent. It's incredible stat, really. Twenty percent of England's landmass is drained by the rivers flowing into it, mm-hmm. um, and as a result, maintaining a port would require intensive dredging to maintain, um, and that is, you know, that's that's not good really for any kind of creature. Uh, relying on, <laughs> on the seabeds, um, and, you know, and as we've seen in Teesside, nothing's been proven. But um, a lot of the fishermen, fishing community up there, think that intense that 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 in dread that they think that dredging has caused this mass uh, die-off of sea life. So I think people need to be really careful with this sort of thing. Thank you. Right, let's move on. Our third and final story of big green news. We're turning our attention back to an eco chamber favourite: sewage pollution. A little reminder that raw human sewage was dumped into England's rivers, lakes and seas at least 372,533 times last year for around 2.7 million hours. And that's the very lowest estimate. Our listeners will be aware that water companies are under investigation by Offwat and the Environment Agency over what the agency describes as potential widespread illegal dumping. And it looks really like the regulators were bounced into those investigations by revelations from campaigners like WASP, Windrush Against Sewage Pollution, which turned into a public outcry that couldn't be ignored. Although the Environment Agency says this is not the case and the probes were launched as a result of their own action. Anyway, whatever, the uh, DEFRA has committed as part of the Environment Act to produce a plan to reduce sewage discharges from combined sewer overflows. Reminder, this is not the only way raw sewage gets into waterways. And uh, so they did. They published a plan at the end of August. It's called the Storm Overflow Discharge Reduction Plan. The plan sets uh, new targets for water companies. They are... That by 2035, the companies will have improved all overflows discharging into or near every designated bathing water and improved 75% of overflows discharging to high priority sites. And bear with uh, that by 2050, no storm overflows will be permitted to operate outside of unusually heavy rainfall or to cause any adverse ecological harm. But Rather than signaling the beginning of the end of sewage pollution, it looks a little bit like it's sparking backlash and a raft of legal challenges. Jamie, can you feel like you can summarise the legal challenges for us? What's happening? What are the issues being raised? Yes. So so there are currently two legal challenges against the, um, the government's plan. Um, I, I'd imagine at some point they, they may all get rolled up together, but there are, there are two challenges at the moment. So, um, and... One of the um, issues that, that has been raised, um, and this, this came up at the time when the plan was published, think, think of it in terms of how many environment secretaries ago it was two, <laughs> by George Eustace in August. Measuring um, our lives in environment secretaries. <laughs> so, um, so one of the criti- big criticisms was the, the um, argument because the, the strategy kind of sets targets so far out that it effectively legalizes sewage dumping so um Fergal Sharkey who who um, featured on a, on a previous podcast he he described the plan as probably the greatest act of violence against the environment I've ever witnessed um, which is not really holding back there <laughs> never um, knowingly understated so, yes. yeah exactly yeah. so so one of the one of the challenges is being brought by the group wildfish um, and they they kind of bring up that ground so so they they, they state that the plan is unlawful on the grounds that it approves continuing unlawful conduct fails to take into account the existing law, breaches the habitats regulations and is irrational. Um 
and because because it kind of sets these targets sort of out to 2035 and 2050 in doing so the plan appears to accept that sewage overflows before those dates will continue to breach the current duties and regulations um that that comes up in another case that's being brought by the good law project and that was recently joined by the marine conservation society so they make a similar argument there but they also um another argument made by the marine conservation society is that, it, that they want the plan rewritten so it so it applies to coastal waters so that they say that at the moment the plan virtually excludes most coastal waters except for, for bathing waters and um, some types of marine protected areas and shellfish waters are totally excluded mm. so so yeah so there's this kind of um th- those are two main prongs of attack but there's, there's kind of more going on as well though that's a lot um Defra must be quite busy right now how have they been responding to these challenges tests well, um, I mean, publicly they say they won't comment on uh, ongoing or prospective legal proceedings. However, um, uh, the, the law, when the lawyers from the Good Law Project gave the government, they gave the government till fifteenth of November to respond to a, a pre-action um, protocol letter, mm-hmm. um, and ENS has seen the response um, that Defra sent them. Um, so we've got a bit of bit of their reaction there, um, and we can see. That they 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 kind of attempt to dis- dismiss the, the the accusations, basically saying there can be no serious doubt that the plan addresses that's the CSO plan addresses the matters that it was required to address. Um, it goes on. It's a plan for reducing discharges from storm overflows of sewerage undertakers in England uh, and reducing the adverse impacts of those discharges. Adding that those points are unarguable and the Secretary of State will resist any claim brought in reliance upon them. Um, so they're yeah they're, they're pushing back quite quite strongly on that, and they take kind of take a few points to task. Um, in particular, the Good Law Project. One of the points they raise is that um, you know the plan doesn't work because it can't contribute meaningfully to halting the decline of biodiversity by 2030, um, because the targets, um, insofar as they relate to 2030, are so hopelessly weak. That's a, I'm quoting that. And in response to that. <laughs> The, the government lawyers said that, well, the 2030 target is a separate provision. Um, it's supported by a range of targets um, on which the government consulted earlier this year, which we have not seen yet, um, <laughs> and then go on to state that these two points are hopeless themselves. <laughs> so right. that's the kind of, that's the kind of um, interactions hmm. we're seeing. So, Jamie, what do you think is going to happen next? Well, I think it's, it's kind of hard to second guess which way the, the cases might go. I think, as, as I mentioned earlier, I think they, they probably will get rolled up together. Um, I mean, good, good, good law project's quite bullish, although the, the um, government's kind of set out how um, how it feels about the, the challenge. Um, good law project's sort of come back and said that it's it's recently forced the government to go back to the drawing board on its net zero strategy and going to do the same here. Um, I mean, I, I kind of wonder whether it might be that the government might end up making some sort of concession or or change potentially. I think it, it seems from Therese Coffey, she's she's not kind of given a great deal of indication that she's particularly interested about the sewage crisis, and it might it might be that she finds it easy to to throw her predecessors under the bus and say it was their fault rather than mm. having anything to do with her. Um, or it might it might kind of be that the government's forced by its lawyers to to consent to judgment and fold, and and therefore. There are there are some changes. I, I don't think it might necessarily it might not necessarily be that the government loses these cases, but I think it might well force some potential change to the policy. Mm. Yeah. So whatever Defra decides to do, it's safe to say that none of the recent reactions have deterred the groups at all, and we'll find soon find out in the new year whether these cases can be progressed. Watch this space. And that brings us to the end of our big green news section. Jamie, you have a quiz. I do have a quiz. Yeah, it's very, very topical. It's a, it's a World Cup environment quiz. <laughs> Woo! So I'm just trying to uh, capitalise on the, on the excitement. about the Qatari environment. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I've just got a few questions. They're not, they're not football related, mm-hmm. so um, that may, may or may not disappoint our listeners. The, the, there's been a bit of controversy in that the World Cup has been described by its organisers as a, as a carbon neutral event. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> Um, so my, my my first question is that is is how many megatons of carbon dioxide equivalent do the organisers estimate that the World Cup will emit? Who can get closest? Mm-hmm. You go first. Oh, I, <laughs> I don't <laughs> even know where to ballpark it. Locking a number out. Yeah, five hundred thousand megatons. I don't. 
I've got no idea. I've no got idea. no frame of reference for no, that. No, it's, it's a really bad question, to be fair. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what a lot is. It's kind of equivalent, apparently, to Iceland as a, as a nation. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. it's kind of quite a lot. But I, I don't know, maybe Iceland doesn't admit that much. I don't know. A megaton is... Um, no, I'm not saying one megaton. A megaton is uh, obviously vast in itself. Yeah. So, I don't know. Well, what one is close. Is the actual answer is 3.6 megatons. So. Right. So, um, 500,000. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, so you'll be, really, be relieved to hear that the organisers say that they, they can achieve carbon neutrality via heavy investment in offsetting schemes. And, right. and also, <laughs> heavy, heavy investment. <laughs> heavy investment. Um, but there, there have been some concerns as well that um, some of the emissions associated with construction have been hugely underestimated and that there are obviously doubts over the integrity of the carbon credits. And um, there's also some impartiality questions over the fact that sustainability criteria have been assessed by a Qatar Investment Authority-owned organisation. It all sounds perfectly above board. <laughs> it um, does. What could so, yeah. And um, Mike, Mike Berners-Lee of um, Lancaster University told the BBC recently that he thinks the real figure of, of emissions is, is way more than 10 million mm. um, megatons. So, um, yeah, so that's one area of controversy. Um, maybe slightly slightly nicer question. Um, one one of the stadiums at the World Cup is called Stadium Nine Seven Four. Can you guess what the Nine Seven Four relates to? <laughs> Actually, two two possible answers. One of them is environment related. The other one isn't. Um, um, I'm, I'm is that of... the number of days until something? No, no. no. Um, Number of hectares of trees felled. <laughs> so it's actually nine seven four is the international dialing code for Qatar. But the other thing that's oh more more God! interesting than that, Jamie. <laughs> uh, no, this is this is environment related. It incorporates nine hundred seventy four recycled shipping containers in homage to the site's industrial history, and it's going to be dismantled after the. World Cup. How is it? Oh. Kind of interesting. Well, and then what I are they going to do with it? Chuck it in the sea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know whether to go ahead with the third question because this has been um, really... They're quite hard, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's to do with <laughs> desalination, so I think uh, maybe, maybe we'll just park it here. And we'll it. <laughs> if it's to do with volumes, can we skip it? Yeah, it is to do with volumes. Oh, I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I think we'll leave that there. It's, it's not been a good World Cup. Why don't you just tell so. us? That'd be quite interesting. Well, to know, yeah, I, I found this interesting, like because, um, well, at least to me, it is. So, so <laughs> Qatar's got a really heavy reliance on desalination, um, which is quite environmentally damaging. So, you produce a lot of brine, which is a problem for coral reefs and smaller marine organisms, and um, lots of carbon emissions associated. So, so actually, producing a turf for the World Cups had a big environmental. Impact. Oh, right. So they're actually they they estimate that each each pitch requires ten thousand liters of desalinated water each day. Oh, for God's sake! And they've really? really got a big problem with this as a, as an issue anyway. So there you go. Wow. Ending on a on a positive note there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was always a great idea to host it in Qatar, wasn't it? Everybody knew that. Uh, so that does bring us to the end of the quiz section. And next up, we have a very special guest joining us in the Eco Chamber. It is Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust's Craig Bennett. I'm delighted now to welcome to the Eco Chamber, Craig Bennett. He has been described as one of the country's top environmental campaigners. Craig is the Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trusts and has been in the role since April 2020. But before that, he was uh, CEO of Friends of the Earth for five years. And prior to that, was Deputy Director at the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership and Director of Prince of Wales Corporate Leaders Group on Climate Change from 2007 to 2010, which is a really impressive CV. Thank you for joining us, Craig. Thanks, Rachel. Nice to be joining you. Before getting into some sort of more detailed questions, I just wanted to ask your thoughts on the current state of the UK's wildlife. We see lots of reports coming out warning of biological annihilation and insect Armageddon and all those apocalyptic scenarios. And I, I myself keep repeating that, you know, often... Um, quoted concern that the UK is among the most nature-depleted countries in the world. Um, and I was hoping that maybe you could kind of help explain how that has come to be the case and whether things are getting any better or if they're getting worse. Yeah, well, how's it come to be the case? I mean, it's just over successive you know, decades, actually, we've had policies in place that have almost like set out to 
destroy a lot of our nature. I mean, let's start, for example, with a lot of agricultural policy over many decades, which has, you know, absolutely used taxpayers' money to subsidize farmers to use huge amounts of pesticides, for example. Well, pesticides, what well, guess what they're designed to do? They're designed to kill insects. So it's not surprising then that you have this insect Armageddon, you know, huge declines, 50% declines at least in the abundance of uh, species that once common. And of course, the loss of abundance of our insects is they're, they're the things that then our birds feed off and then other species feed off. So it affects the whole supply chain. Um, we've seen a lot of loss of wildlife habitat, again, in perhaps in the agricultural landscape, the loss of field margins and so on. Uh, but actually, even in our towns and cities, sometimes, you know, we've seen the loss of uh, some of those little sort of forgotten bits of land, which actually are these wild places, which are uh, what we would call almost wild belt as well, the little forgotten bits of land around our towns or cities, which actually might be incredibly important for nature as well. Many of those have, have gone. And, and so we've seen the ended up in this sort of gradual thinning of our biodiversity in the wider countryside and in our towns and cities. And actually, the very fact that in many cases, the abundance of once common species is now better in our towns and cities than in our wider countryside tells you an awful lot that's going on. And it's not that really people have planned to do this as such, but the policies have rewarded the wrong things. And so, you know, my, I would never really blame farmers, for example, in what's happened in the agricultural environment. I would blame, far, blame farming policy. So that does give us hope that things could change. If the government puts their mind to do it. And I think you do see lots of communities, a lot of business, a lot of farmers and others want things to change now, but we're just not seeing change fast enough. So the government's been, you know, there's been lots and lots of policies coming out of the government recently. We've had the Environment Act 2021. We're closing in on the end of the fifth year since the 25-year environment plan was launched. Um, we have an Agriculture Act and lots of nature restoration uh, policy papers in the offing. So can you see any of these working? Do any of those uh, answer the, the kind of the problems that, that we're facing that you've just outlined? Well, I think there's been some good thinking. Uh, there's been some good headlines. Uh, in many cases, we're still waiting for the government to deliver on a lot of the promises that are associated with those headlines. Yes, we had the Environment Act, uh, which was became went from becoming a bill to becoming an act about a year ago. But sadly, you know, the government's fallen at the first hurdle on that. Uh, they were supposed to set uh, legally binding targets for nature's recovery and for other environmental targets, such as around air pollution legally required to set them by October the 31st, and they missed it. They missed it by a country mile. Uh, and they they actually blamed that they had too many responses from the consultation as a reason to do that. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous to try and blame the public for the reason that DEF had so utterly failed to publish what these targets would be. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yes, there's been some good thinking, but there's also seems to be some you know, after all the ambitious headlines, then a lot of backtracking. We're seeing it on the environmental land management schemes at the moment, which is the new uh, agricultural policy as well. After all the big headlines and announcements, you know, originally from Michael Gove around the thinking there, and certainly some good direction and travel on it, we've seen the ambition then them watered down and watered down time and time again. And we'll probably find out in the next couple of weeks, actually, you know, what the, the what, where we're heading with those. And, it, and I just think it's going to be really disappointing. It's just going to be a missed opportunity to deliver what could have been one of the few environmental silver linings around Brexit. What kind of targets do you want to see set? I know, I know that's a big question, but for example, on um, you know maybe a percentage of nature restoration or what it might be, because these are targets are quite they're the big, long-term, overarching targets, aren't they? That the government's supposed to set, but even some of the things it was talking about didn't quite fit that bill. No, well, uh, we want to see the graphs going in the right direction. I don't know about you and me, both of us probably. For the whole of our lives, we've seen all these graphs of species abundance and diversity all pointing downwards. Yeah. And I'm fed up with that, and I think most people mm. are. And it's not enough just to slow the decline. We need to reverse it. And that's, of course, what the government promised in their 25-year environment plan. That's, of course, what the government promised in their 2019 Conservative Party manifesto commitment at the general election in 2019. Um, but that means, therefore, that we need targets for restoring the abundance of nature and that by 2030, by 2040, we want to see greater abundance than we have now. Uh, and 
that should be possible to do. I mean, you know, for me growing up in the 1970s, 1980s, I remember that you'd go on a long drive or something and you'd get to the other end and there'd be lots of dead insects squashed on the number yeah, plate on the front of the car. Too. That doesn't happen now. That's an example. So we should be able to turn things around. The problem is, is at the moment, what the thinking government has been doing around these targets is to set it, set them on a 2030 baseline, which means actually things could get a lot worse through the 2020s and only then do they think about turning them around and actually where we could get to by 2040 could still be worse than it is now. That would be yeah. an utter failure. Uh, and yeah. so we need government to say, on a baseline of today or on a baseline in the past, actually, how can we increase our species abundance? How can we increase the range of some of our species? How can we make sure we've got good functioning ecosystems in this country? Obviously, in addition to good, clean water quality, uh, good air quality, and many of the other targets that we see. It's not rocket science to set these. What you need is the political ambition. And sadly, that's what seems to be lacking at the moment. Do you think, you know, there's an argument that um, obviously targets themselves are are, need, are needed, but sometimes they're kind of thrown out there and then everyone's happy there's something to work towards. And then they may, you know, 10 years, 20 years later, 10 years or 20 years later, they will get, um, they'll be missed and the more will be set. And it, it doesn't seem to be the, the motivating factor, especially if they're so far down the line and administrations know they'll be far from the reins of power by then. I mean, obviously, targets are a means to an end rather than the end in themselves. They're a, they're a way of us getting that focus about kind of where we're heading. But you've then got to put in all the efforts that are going to deliver on those targets. And, you know, we know this, of course, from the climate debate. It is useful to have targets for emissions reduction. Uh, but the targets themselves don't do anything. You have to put in the hard work to actually in the policies that will deliver on that. And in fact, more to the point, we have to make sure that we have a package of policies that add up to delivering the targets that have been set. We need that on climate and we need it on nature as well. And actually, I often sort of liken it to, to if, if the government has said, and they have said this, they have committed at a headline level to say we need to uh, put nature in recovery, we need to rebuild our natural infrastructure. But I find myself thinking if we were, if the UK was like hosting the Olympics in 2030 or 2040 or something, we wouldn't just say, great, we're hosting it. We're going to have the opening ceremony in 2030 or 2040 and keep our fingers crossed and hope it will happen. You'd have really complicated project planning and project uh, milestones and Gantt charts and all those things to work out what has to be done by when and in what order to build all the venues and, and build the infrastructure associated with it. And in exactly the same way, if we're going to rebuild our natural infrastructure, that's what we need now. We need kind of the Gantt charts and work out what order it has to happen in and all the programs to deliver that and make sure we uh, have the opening ceremony for rebuilt natural infrastructure in 2040 or 2030. And there's none of that thinking really going on at the moment, not in government. Why do you think that doesn't happen then? What, what's stopping them from doing that? Well, I just don't think we're seeing the, the level of political commitment that we need, you know, and also the problem is, is we're seeing lots of chopping and changing of policy all the time. Mm. You know, I mean, what I find extraordinary and sometimes exhausting is that of all the sort of different conservative governments we've had over the last decade or so, you know, half the time, certainly on environmental measures, each new incoming government under a new conservative prime minister seems to be, as much as anything, focused on trying to undo what the previous conservative government did. And <laughs> so for the rest of us involved in this, trying to watch it, it's uh, pretty exhausting to see all this flip-flopping uh, yeah. from one party in government uh, throughout that time. We need to see clear and consistent and ambitious package of policy measures to do what was promised in the 25-year environment plan, to do what was promised in the Conservative Party uh, manifesto, and to help tackle the climate and nature crisis. But at the moment, we just have this constant chopping and changing and dithering and um, you know, just not seeing the delivery that we need to see. And that's before we get, Rachel, into the appalling, actually, things going in exactly the wrong direction that have emerged over the last three months. Uh, first of all, under Liz Truss, of course, you had the what NGOs and many others called the attack on nature with this whole package of measures. I mean, first of all, you know, setting up an argument that suggested somehow 
the environment was a barrier to economic growth, which of course is entirely wrong. And I'm sure I don't need to persuade listeners of this podcast for that. But then, you know, uh, everything from the fracking ban to investment zones to this appalling retained EU law bill, which we might come on to in a minute, uh, which will just set us backwards in a huge, uh, fast direction. Now, under Rishi Sunak, the tone's been better. And it was great that on, on the steps of Downing Street, when he when he walked in, he talked about how a good environment is uh, can go hand in hand with a good economy. And it's good that, for example, they put the ban and fracking back on place and, and so on. But sadly, the uh, proposals for the retained EU law bill still exist. And that will decimate our uh, laws that protect our wildlife and environment. So huge concerns. Yeah. So just for Eco Chamber listeners, I'm sure we've been banging on a bit about this for a while. So many will recognize it, but some may not that this retained EU law revocation and reform bill has a sunset clause in it that would automatically automatically means that um, EU derived law would expire by the end of December 2023, although some things might have extensions unless they're saved by the government. And that obviously takes in thousands and thousands of laws, hundreds and hundreds of which are related to environmental protections, some of which are really, really key. Uh, and have been, um, I think, sort of the fundamental um, method of uh, habitat protection um, going forward. So I, I was wanting to ask you, of those laws, which do you think, um, you know, would be the most problematic if we lost them? Have you heard any any uh, noise from DEFRA about, you know, whether they might start to think differently about this? And, and also your involvement in the letter that you sent to Prime Minister Rishi Sunak this week, um, asking him to, to rethink the, the entire move completely. I mean, the first thing to understand uh, around this, Rachel, is this is... Uh, ideologically driven this law um it's all about ideology and trying to you know drive forward that the the thinking that was originally behind brexit and the argument being that if any law is being derived is being created in an eu context now it's going to be put over into uk law or we get rid of it and it's that idea of kind of deregulation brexit equals deregulation and so um, that will cause uh, complete chaos because so much of our legislation was, uh, particularly around the environment, was developed in that EU context. And you can say, well, what particular laws? The problem is the government themselves are still trying to work out what this applies to. I mean, just we, we thought it was around 570 bits of legislation. But apparently in the last week or so, Defence found another thousand stuff behind the sofa, essentially, that they didn't know about, and they're trying to work out what to do with. That shows just how absurd this whole situation is. It just yeah. shows. I mean, the government does not know what it's doing on this. That's the thing. It's mm -hmm. just concerned about pure ideology and doesn't even seem to care about what impact we have on the environment. We get these kind of bland reassurances, as we have done from Jacob Rees-Mogg, oh, no, we're, we're just roll over the environmental legislation. But in which case, why have them? Why have have it stipulated in this bill? And it, it is fundamentally undemocratic to introduce, you know, these sunset clauses. You know, sunset clauses are very, very rarely used in Parliament. They're used in emergency situations when essentially emergency regulation is introduced and extreme regulation and the idea that it can't stay on the statute book. So, of course, the most recent example of this was during the pandemic when the uh, government introduced COVID laws, essentially. And because they were very extreme, it was right. I'm sure most of us would agree there'd be sunset clauses on those so that they don't, um, they, they will expire, as it were. You don't use a sunset clause to get rid of legislation that was debated in Parliament uh, there for the longer term. You know, and actually what it means is uh, it's giving this huge, huge power to ministers, not parliament, to decide whether to keep or get rid of or amend legislation that took decades to put in place uh, without any parliamentary scrutiny. I mean, that is fundamentally undemocratic, and it means there will not be that scrutiny there. It will cause chaos. What I find extraordinary is you would have thought the government would have learned because of the, through the trust Quartang uh, mini budget about the chaos that be, can be caused from this kind of ideology. And sadly, they don't seem to have learned it at all because where we're heading at the moment, which is why you've had this letter from business leaders, from trade union leaders, from NGO leaders uh, today, um, it's going to cause whatever you think about it, just but on a practical basis, this will cause complete chaos. No one will know towards the end of next year actually what the regulatory 
requirements will be across product regulation around protecting uh, environment, protecting our most precious sites, our rivers, our water quality, uh, our air quality across a whole range of things. And there's no way DEFRA is going to have the capacity to look at thousands of bits of legislation in the next 12 months. They couldn't even set those environmental targets in the last 12 months, a handful of environmental targets that were required by the uh, Environment Act. So if they can't even set a handful of targets in 12 months, what makes them think they're going to be able to look at thousands of bits of legislation? Yeah. Do you think Sunak's actually serious about it? I don't know if I was being a little bit hopeful here, but I thought he might have just been, um, you know, it might have just been a campaign ploy around who could be the most red tape slashy when he was running against Liz Truss because they were trying to outdo each other and just how brutal they were going to be with all this legislation. Now he's in power. Is you know, I was hoping, wishful thinking potentially that maybe they would they would rein back from this. You'd hope so. I mean, I, 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 you know, in the whole of my career, I've never seen anything quite as ridiculous as this. It mm. is. Uh, I, I genuinely think, actually, ministers probably still don't realise just the chaos this will cause, and it's yeah. so severe. It's so ridiculous that even amongst sort of NGOs and business and, and unions, we've been looking at it for weeks now and trying to understand the impact it will cause, and we can't quite believe it. And yet, clearly, it's going through at, at the moment. It's now, you know, astonishing that it's now in committee stage and being considered. Yeah. Um, so uh, the only real option on this is for the whole bill to be withdrawn. I mean, there's, you know, there's... It, you, for it to be even vaguely acceptable, you'd have to pull so much out of it. You haven't got a bill left, really. And here's the thing here. It's not that I'm saying that we've got to keep uh, all the sort of EU law and so on. You know, Brexit has happened. We can have a good, sensible, calm conversation about how we should evolve EU-derived law in a UK context. And I would say hopefully make it a lot better because it's not as if it's uh, stopped the environmental crisis. But surely it's common sense that you develop what the alternative is going to be and you put it in place before you uh, get rid of the old law. Instead, you'd have think so. Instead, this government is determined to get rid of the existing law uh, before it's worked out what's going to replace it. And it's just extraordinary. Even a five-year-old could understand why that's not going to work. So I think uh, you'd hope that the penny's starting to drop for ministers and MPs, and particularly with you know, the front page of the Financial Times today about this letter, a strong representation from business leaders, trade unions and NGOs. You hope they'll start to realise just uh, how they're heading for another ridiculous crisis that's been created in Downing Street and uh, they're pulled back from this. But, you know, they seem to be a bit deaf on this at the moment. Mm. I mean, you kind of preempted my next question, which was, you know, is there a case for reform? Clearly not everything all in one go in 12 months. But given that, um, as you know, you're saying the environment is not in a good in a good state wherever you look, um, is it that the, the legislation isn't quite right or is it that it's just not being implemented and, and enforced properly? And that, that brings me on to, you know, the regulators in, in your experience, you know, are they properly resourced, you know, is the, do they have the right leaders, do they have the right political will behind them in DEFRA to, to get the job done? Obviously, any law is only ever as good as its enforcement. And we've not seen uh, enforcement as strongly as we should over the last decade or so. And it really goes back to austerity one, if you like, when there were massive cuts to the budget from the likes of the Environment Agency and Natural England um, and they tried to find different ways of doing their job and actually gave a lot of permissions and self-regulation to the likes of water companies and so on. And, and you know, this is, that's categorically failed. You know, the evidence is really clear, which is why there's also been so much attention on uh, sewage pollution and rivers over the last uh, couple of years and so on. Self-regulation has categorically failed in that regard. Um, and so, yes, we need much stronger enforcement. Um, we have seen increased resources to Natural England Environment Agency. That's good. What we also want to see is that a very clear, firm culture within those organisations, uh, within those arms and bodies, and support for ministers to say very clearly that the lights of Environment Agency and Natural England need to be supported to get on and do their job of enforcement. And sadly, you've not always seen that support there from ministers in the way that we would like. But yes, over and beyond that, of course, we could see a big improvement. We could and should see a big improvement on uh, the legislation and regulations needed to protect the environment. Um, We could do better than we had in the European Union. And that would be the real dream is that we can evolve this now to be really have outcome focused regulation that absolutely delivers 
on uh, improving environmental standards. Uh, and that would be the conversation we'd be love to be having at the moment. But very sadly, instead, we find ourselves in this uh, defensive mode, just desperately trying to keep what we've got. Yeah. So DEFRA, of course, sponsors these agencies. Are, are you pleased then to have Therese Coffee back at the helm? Is she somebody who worked well with last time around? Um, well, you know, we'll see. Um, you know, uh, there's some interesting uh, experiences around Therese Coffee. I'm sure your listeners are aware famously of when she was an environment minister and she proudly uh, showed a photo on Twitter of her using Roundup in her back garden, which obviously caused a certain reaction amongst uh, many <laughs> kind of committed environmentalists. Um, but I mean, I suppose what is encouraging is she kind of uh, does know some of the issues. Um, she she wanted to meet with uh, NGO leaders in her first week as Secretary of State, which was very welcome and a huge improvement on her uh, predecessor that was in for just six weeks, um, uh, who didn't seem to want to meet with any of us. Um, and so that is encouraging. And she's got a very, very big intray at the moment to kind of work through. And so we want to kind of give her the support to deliver on this. And, you know, we certainly the Wildlife Trust, but I hope other NGOs as well, will just give a very balanced scorecard over time as to how she does on this. She one of the first things we would say, we would hope that she would make the case very strongly in cabinet that the retained EU law bill needs to be withdrawn because uh, that will be a disastrous legacy for her and for DEFRA if on her watch that bill goes through and removes thousands of bits of environment legislation. And it might be coming from a different department, if you like, but she needs to be making uh, very strong representations in cabinet that this will be a disaster and, and also that would just sap up all the bandwidth of DEFRA for years ahead. So even if they extend the sunset clauses, it means for years ahead, you can't really expect DEFRA to do much else. Well, if I could wave a wand and you were suddenly made Environment Secretary yourself, I think I know what one of the things you would do is, given what you've just said, but what would be the sort of first three things that you would turn your attention to sort of immediately and try to address? Well, I would try and give real clarity about the long-term direction we need to go in. And that's why things like the environment targets are really important. Because actually, this is the thing around, um, you know, it comes to the bigger point about actually why growth, uh, economic growth, I think, has been so subdued in the UK over the last 10, 12 years. Actually, it's just uncertainty as to which direction of travel we're going in. And business will only invest when it has confidence in a certain direction of travel. And if we, right now, I think there's an opportunity uh, for the government, if it wants to take it, to say very clearly, you know, the long-term direction of this country is, is one that wants to live within its environmental means and actually that we have a huge economic opportunity here to be a world leader in delivering an environmentally sustainable economy, uh, one that uh, tackles the nature crisis, tackles the climate crisis, and that will allow business to scale up its investment, environmentally friendly technologies and uh, business models and so on, uh, and give that kind of clarity where we're going. So and practically, that looks like putting those targets in place and then putting the plan in place to reach those targets. Um, and that means then we can look at improving the laws that will do that and uh, actually focus on recovery and driving the change, driving the transformation that's needed and create the environmental markets that then can support that. I think there's also clearly, uh, so that's overview. Second thing, we need to get grips with what's happening in agricultural transition. You know, I have massive sympathy at the moment for the huge uncertainty and confusion being caused for farmers in all this. The vast majority of farmers I meet are just desperate to have agricultural policy that will support them to put nature in recovery, uh, to really enable them to sort of move to regenerative agriculture, agroforestry, uh, creating soil carbon and so on. And vast majority of farmers are well up for doing that and should be rewarded handsomely for doing that. But again, all the chopping and changing uncertainty around environmental land management schemes means that it's a very confusing and difficult time for farmers. And so we find real common cause there on the need to do that. And, for, and finally, then, I would say, actually, you know, uh, make sure this all adds up to real changes. And, you know, say in the water and the river environment, for example, we've seen all that pollution over the last few years increasing. Some of the worst performance we've seen uh, around water quality over the last few years, there's been a lot of attention on, com attention on uh, combined sewer overflows and water companies, and quite right so. But actually, most pollution in our rivers comes from agriculture. So 
you put those two hand in hand, if we get it right, if we get agricultural policy right, if we support farmers to put in buffers around rivers and uh, uh, and so on and reduce inputs, actually we'll see our water environment clearing up as well. So there's a lot that could be done very quickly if the determination is there. But not much is going to happen if confusion reigns. And sadly, that's what's happened over the last few years. And, and on here on the eco chamber, we're often quite gloomy about, about these kind of things. So I was hoping to ask you if we could end on something on, on a positive note. And if you could let us know about some of the work the Wildlife Trust are doing across the country that could kind of lift our spirits as we carry on into the week. Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the huge, huge privileges of the job I have is to spend quite a lot of time traveling around the country and seeing the work on the ground that wildlife trusts and other organizations are doing. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was up visiting Yorkshire Wildlife Trust and saw their amazing uh, Yorkshire peat partnership, where they were storing vast amounts of upland peat um, by uh, stopping the, the erosion, the very severe erosion of gullies where there's been overgrazing and um, so on in the past, and, and putting in little coir dams and so on, and little wood dams and stuff to hold water back in the landscape. Um, and to allow sphagnum moss to grow again. And actually, you're seeing recovery of those upland peat bogs far faster than you could ever have hoped for. And that means those those degraded peat bogs that were a source of carbon are now starting to turn around and suck carbon out of the air. Uh, those peat bogs that were degraded and when there was a heavy rainfall would re- result in water running off the uplands very fast and causing flooding downstream actually are now holding water back in the landscape. Um, and they're incredibly important wildlife habitat. I mean, it's truly transformational to see what's happening there. Um, similarly, when I was in Yorkshire, I also saw the amazing Yorkshire Wildlife Project for Wild Ingleborough, which is actually one of those landscape recovery schemes that would see uh, nature put in recovery across a, a large area of, of Ingleborough. Uh, when I see the work that Wildlife Trust are doing in schools and in communities around the country and the huge passion and engagement, particularly from young people uh, around this whole agenda, you know, there's no shortage of amazing things happening on the ground across this country. That's what makes actually things for me, that gives what gives me hope. But it also makes it uh, for me very frustrating if in Whitehall and Westminster, you're seeing politicians actually putting these barriers up to all these brilliant things that communities are doing to try and turn things around. And so if uh, Ecotember listeners want to get involved with the Wildlife Trust, what's the best way for them to do that, to get involved with their local trust? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, it's worth right now looking at the Wildlife Trust website uh, and uh, taking steps on our Defend Nature campaign, which is absolutely related to trying to tackle these threats that we've been talking to right now but also absolutely please join your local wildlife trust i mean the the great thing about the wildlife trust is we are uh each local trust is made up of people who live and work in that area who absolutely know that local community that engage with local uh stakeholders all the time and ultimately are accountable back to that local community but part of something much bigger the part of the wider wildlife trust movement so uh we're having a huge impact there so please if you're not a member join and get involved that's wonderful thank you so much for spending time with us here in the eco chamber crabe we'll be watching your work with interest and uh we'll be following all those issues that we covered earlier particularly that bill uh to see where we end up but thank you very much for for spending time with us not at all lovely to speak to you rachel Now it's time for our Knowing Me, Knowing You section. Simon Pickstone and Alice Fillon are here again, and this time they're going to bring you the latest policy from Brussels on the EU's Energy Charter Treaty. Over to you, Alice and Simon. Thanks, Rachel. And uh, what's our topic today, Simon? On the agenda this week, mm. Alice, we have the Energy Charter Treaty. Oh, exciting. I know, I know. As always. It is kind of dramatic, though. It is exciting by EU standards. But just to be clear, this is actually wider than the EU. Yeah. So for a little bit of context, the Energy Charter Treaty is a multilateral agreement signed by 53 partners Mm -hmm. from mainly Europe and Asia. It was the product of the post-Cold War period. You had a lot of investors who were interested in the energy resources and assets of post-Soviet states. Um, oil and coal, et cetera, et cetera, generally in the, in the 90s. And they basically were keen to have a kind of guarantee that their investments would be secure. Yeah. So classic international investment treaty 
Um, it provides protection for energy investment, particularly trying to ensure stability. Uh, and it was signed in December 1994 and then came into force in April 1998. Didn't know that. <laughs> well, you do now. <laughs> anyway, it's been a hugely controversial topic within the EU. So the EU is a signatory and then every EU member state barring Italy is a signatory because Italy withdrew in 2016. Um, the reason it's so controversial is because it allows investors, generally energy companies, but mm. can be any party who feels they have a yeah. energy investment, who have invested in a foreign country that also has a signatory to the ECT, to sue that government if they believe a policy change has adversely affected either existing profits or, and this is highly controversial, future profits. Yeah, the viability of their investment, essentially. Which, again, is classic international investment uh, principles. But, yeah, the main tension is that it means that the policy making of a particular state is understandably fettered by this. Yeah. And I think a lot of climate campaigners a couple of years ago really came down quite hard on the ECT because there were a couple of really controversial cases where a an investor had sued an EU government for changes to its climate and energy policy that were designed in order to reduce its CO2 emissions that also had an adverse impact on fossil fuel investment. So uh, a recent example was a British oil and gas exploration company called Rock Copper Exploration sued the Italian government over a ban on offshore oil and gas exploration, which Rock Copper won last year after several years of legal proceedings. And this all happened through a kind of in investor state settlement dispute yeah, mechanism. Yeah, so the, uh, the mechanism is uh, arbitration. So if the dispute is not resolved amicably, the investor can choose whether to uh, pursue the case in the courts of the uh, relevant party. So say if it were um, against Spain, then it could choose to go through the Spanish court system or um, an admin tribunal in Spain. Or it can go through an international arbitration court or basically conciliation as specified in the treaty. Or if it previously agreed uh, on an alternative settlement, then it can go through there as well. I mean, I mean, you can see that from a campaigner's perspective. I mean, from a kind of democracy perspective, people have a lot of problems with that because it's not very transparent. They're not public courts. They're arbitration panels. Yeah, the, the arbitration courts. So one of the ones that's um, the main one would be the uh, International Centre for Settlement of uh, Investment Disputes. Um, and then they can also go through the Arbitration Institute of the Stockholm Chamber of Commerce. So these are all trade uh, bodies, really, like they're arbitration bodies, but they are, yeah, they're, they're primarily, again, international investment mm. tribunals. So they're not necessarily courts in the same sense that we would uh, consider, you know, the courts of a particular state to be. And the other actually interesting aspect here is that the EU obviously has its own court system through the European Court of Justice. The European Court of Justice hates the Energy Charter Treaty and repeatedly has ruled that, you, that it does not recognise the validity of claims made under the ECT between a company based in an EU member state against another EU member state that the ECJ says, no, this is this is not a valid legal settlement because we, as the, EC, as the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, are the only, <laughs> we're the only court that can, that can rule on in, intra-EU disputes, basically. So whenever there's a claim under the Energy Charter Treaty between an EU company and an EU member state, the European Court of Justice will say something like, or the European Commission, rather, will say something like, we don't think this is valid because under EU law it isn't because the, only the European Court of Justice is a valid entity for these kind of disputes. Anyway, the European Commission has spent a, a few years now drumming up support to modernise the treaty. And in what way do they want to modernise the treaty? So basically they wanted to, they wanted to remove the... There's basically a 20-year... Um, sunset clause. Sunset clause, even once you've left the ECT... That means that fossil fuel protection is still in place. 
the commission eventually did agree with other member, other signatories of the ECT on a draft or a kind of provisional agreement that would um, basically introduce a 10-year phase-out period, um, after which time fossil fuel investments would no longer be protected under the ECT. So that's existing fossil fuel existing fossil investments. Fuel investments. Right? And then new ones? And new ones, and new ones would have no protection anymore. Um, campaigners think that this is not enough. They've been calling now for member states to, EU member states to withdraw as a group from the ECT mm-hmm. in a kind of negotiated withdrawal where basically the EU member states could all pledge that basically companies that have their headquarters within an EU member state would be unable to pursue claims under the ECT against another EU member state. And the interesting thing is the EU support for the modernized treaty has absolutely collapsed. So we've now had seven EU member states announce that they're going to just walk away from it anyway. Okay, which uh, which <laughs> member test. states are they? <laughs> it is Germany, the yeah. Netherlands, mm-hmm. Poland, Luxembourg, yeah. Spain, France, and Slovenia. Slovenia. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the interesting thing here is under um, EU voting rules, when you have the member states getting together to vote on particular issues, you need to normally have a qualified majority. So that's 65% of EU member states representing 55% of the EU's population. Mm. And so it no longer has a qualified majority of countries in favour of the modernisation of the ECT because a number of these countries have now said they will abstain from any vote. So that's quite a big deal and it basically has thrown up in the air completely the European Commission's plans to modernise this treaty. could all just collapse. And then on the 24th of November, last Thursday, um, something happened in Parliament as well, right? Well, I mean, yeah, because MEPs, so these are members of the European Parliament, absolutely hate the ECT as a rule. And there's generally been a strong majority in the European Parliament in favour of withdrawing. Um, And they made that point again last week. uh, A a pretty hefty majority uh, voted in favour of a non-binding resolution urging the EU to step away from the ECT. The interesting thing to note is that uh, the the main centre-right party, the EPP, which is also the largest party in the European Parliament um, voted against the resolution as a as a whole, although a handful of EPP lawmakers rebelled, so they voted with the majority. Um, and they say that the EU basically shouldn't give up on multilateralism and that this would be a kind of bad signal to investors. Um, but a majority of MEPs disagree with that take. Yeah. So initially, there were still calls for the Energy Charter Treaty to be reformed. So the the Commission asked member states to still vote to reform, even as individual states were announcing their intent to withdraw. Yeah, it's put it's put the European Commission in a kind of tricky position. We've been trying to get a answer from the Commission for a couple of weeks now about whether it has any contingency plans. And this is the kind of thing that the European Commission simply hates to discuss with journalists, whether it has contingency plans. Um, But it's looking more and more likely that they'll have to do something because uh, it's not at all clear that even if um, they could basically get the sign-off they need from the member states to go to the Energy Charter Conference with the other signatories to the ECT um, to, to ratify the provisional agreement, it's not at all clear when that decision comes back to the parliament and to the member states that there'd be a majority in either of the co-legislative bodies to approve the final deal. So um, we get to hear what the commission intends to do about that. That's sort of an open question. Doesn't that leave the EU and the EU member states in the worst position then if they walk away, withdraw, subject to the 20-year sunset clause, rather than sign on to the reform then withdraw this is an interesting this is an interesting question and i'm not sure that i have the answer here what i think the green group certainly would say is that the eu member states could among themselves agree that they would basically not allow companies to use the mechanism against other eu member states and bear in mind that most of the highest value 
legal disputes are between EU companies and EU member states. Yeah. So it would actually cut out a lot of the force of the treaty if the EU was to come up with a kind of intra-EU agreement not to not yeah. to not to make use of the treaty. So they would force a way out, but then that would leave them in a that would weaken the value of international law potentially in general. I mean I think I think this is where basically the commission's coming from is that the commission has a really strong tradition of wanting to be embracing multilateral agreements and providing investor stability and showing good faith in terms of using its global leverage to improve governance across the world, basically. Yeah, considering that a lot of uh, international agreements, especially international environmental agreements, rely so heavily on goodwill, Mm. essentially, from all the parties, it would definitely be an interesting move because on the one hand it's it sends a very clear signal that you know it's not enough we need more action on fossil fuels but it does run the risk of then weakening future deliberation i guess future consensus for other aspects of environmental protection yeah i think it's a bit of a moot point at this stage um but we'll have to wait and see (laughs) we will as always (laughs) back to you rachel And that brings us to the end of this episode of The Eco Chamber. Thank you to Jamie Carpenter, Tess Colley, Simon Pickstone and Alice Fillon. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been talking about, please head over to energyport.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time.